It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter, and today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. As we've been saying, 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians who are suffering, Christians who are being hated, they're being mocked, they're being imprisoned, they're even being killed because in this life they have chosen to follow Jesus. And as Matt talked about last week, this is what Jesus promised. Jesus said that if the world hated me, if the world rejected me, then those who follow me, they're going to hate, they're going to reject. And the Bible tells us that all those who choose to live a godly life in this world will be persecuted. It's a promise. We live in a world where your neighbor, your classmate, they're gonna think you're absolutely foolish for believing in Jesus. We live in a world where they believe that you're, you're an absolute lunatic, crazy for following and believing in this book called the Bible. We live in a world where your boss is going to threaten to fire you because you keep sharing the gospel. We live in a world where we turn on the news and we hear that 26 of our brothers and sisters in Christ, along with their children, were shot dead because they decided to gather together and worship Jesus that day. And in many ways, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means. Not health and wealth and prosperity, but suffering. Why? Because Jesus suffered, right? And this is what it means to follow Jesus. And for those of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the ocean, this is not shocking to them. This is the norm. This is their everyday life. And, and us as Christians in America, we're getting a taste of their norm. Suffering is the norm for Christians who follow Jesus who has suffered. But not just suffering, right? Suffering that leads to glory. We want to follow Jesus just for glory, but it's suffering that leads to glory. There is no resurrection apart from the crucifixion. Church, I don't know what the level of suffering and persecution you're experiencing right now, but I do know this, have you decided to follow Jesus? We sang that good old hymn last week, I have decided to follow Jesus. Have you decided to follow Jesus? If you have, you will be persecuted. Suffering is here, more suffering is going to come, and Peter is writing to suffering Christians. The entire goal of the book of 1 Peter is to strengthen us and encourage us in the midst of whatever suffering we're going through and to equip us and prepare us for whatever future suffering that might come our way by pointing us over and over and over to the hope that we have in Jesus. So are you suffering today? Well, I hope God's word today will encourage you. But if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, you know, I wouldn't quite describe it as suffering. I think life's going pretty well right now. I think I'm doing pretty good. I hope that you would take this word and tuck it away. I hope that you would take this word and hide it in your heart. And remember to go back to it when suffering does come, because it will, because it will. If you have chosen to follow Jesus in this world, suffering will come. And I want us to be a church that's prepared and ready to give a, give a reason for the hope that is in you, in Christ Jesus. We're gonna be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 
It's considered one of the most difficult to understand passage of scripture in all the New Testament. I'm gonna read it for us and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's a beautiful sentence. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. You guys feel bad for me? What in the world does that mean? Like I said, one of the most difficult to understand passages of scripture. I know you want a 30 minute sermon, not a three hour lecture. And so even though there may be lots of questions, we're just not going to get to it all. We're not going to state all that this text could mean, but focus on the minimum of what it does mean. And so at minimum, what is Peter doing here? He's encouraging us and strengthening us. That's what he's doing. But how is he doing that? In three ways. First, by pointing us to Jesus. Second, by pointing us to the days of Noah. And third, by pointing us to baptism. So Jesus, the days of Noah, and then baptism. So first, Peter is going to encourage us in the midst of our suffering by reminding us something about Jesus. What is it? Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered for Christ also suffered and we could just stop right here do you see the encouragement in those four words for Christ also suffered do you feel the strength and the hope in those four words Peter is starting off with a bang this is probably the greatest encouragement and the greatest hope that suffering Christians could ever receive for Christ also suffered. He could have just said this and dropped the mic, but we're gonna see he's going to have lots and lots and lots of more encouragement. We're gonna see a lot from Peter today. And for those of us who aren't quite suffering, you're gonna think, you know, I get it, that's enough. But for those who are suffering, we're gonna need all of it. We're gonna need all of it. Any kind of suffering is bad, but what makes suffering unbearable is when it seems like you're alone, right? When, you're, when, when it seems like you're suffering alone, when it seems like nobody quite understands what you're going through, and you know objectively speaking that there are other people that's gone through it, right? But the thing about suffering is it always makes you feel alone. And so if you know somebody that's suffering, one of the best things that you could ever do for them is to just go be with them. Go be with them. You don't necessarily have to go and do all these things for them, but just go be with them. It's called the ministry of presence. Just let them know that they're not alone. I remember many years ago, um, about 15 years ago, I think, one of my best friends in the world, Kevin Peck, our lead pastor, he lost his mom to cancer. 
And I remember not really knowing what to do to comfort him. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to be there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go sit on his couch every day. And so that's what I did. I just went and sat on his couch every day. You know? And so we, we talked some and, and we prayed some, but mostly we just played Xbox and ate a lot of Chicken Express. And um, I just knew I had to be there. Um, but then a few, la- few years later, I lost my mom to cancer. And this time, Kevin was there for me. But the comfort that he was able to bring me was so much greater than the comfort that I was able to bring him. Why? Because I knew that he knew exactly what I was going through. That's why. Because I knew that he knew exactly what I was going through. I knew that he had walked through it. I knew he had experienced the pain. And that's the reality that Peter is pointing out for us. For Christ also suffered. Are you suffering? The greatest source of encouragement that we could ever have is Peter is saying, Jesus knows. He has suffered. He has suffered. Be comforted, be encouraged, be strengthened because Jesus also suffered. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If Jesus stayed in heaven, he wouldn't have suffered, right? He wouldn't have known suffering. If he wasn't willing to be born and become human, he wouldn't have died, but then we wouldn't have been saved. But he did come, and he did become human, and he did suffer, and so he's our God. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% human, 100% like us. And so he's able to say, I know. I know exactly what you're going through. And he didn't just suffer. He died. Verse 18 says, being put to death in the flesh. Jesus suffered all the way to the point of death on the cross. And the question is, why did he have to suffer so much? Why did he have to suffer so much so that no matter what the suffering that we go through, right, he would not turn to us and say, you know, I suffered, but I never experienced that kind of suffering. Sorry, I don't know. So that no matter what the level of pain that you and I would go through, Jesus could never say to us, you know, I experienced pain in this world, but never that level of pain, I'm sorry. So that no matter what the kind of suffering, no matter what level of pain, he would be to us a savior whose answer would always be, I know. I know what you're going through. And you won't find this kind of comfort in any other religion or in any other belief system. This is one of the key distinctives of the Christian faith. It's only in the Bible, it's only in Christianity where we have a God who was willing to suffer. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a believer, this is why Christians love Jesus so much. Because in Jesus we have a God who has entered into human history and who has suffered and who has died, a God who would suffer, a God who would die. Who are we to have a God like him? Who are we to have a God like him? But this is exactly the God that we needed. John Piper wrote this week in response to the shooting at Sutherland Springs, he said, mass murder is why Jesus came 
into the world the way he did? What kind of savior do we need when our hearts are shredded by brutal loss? We need a suffering savior. We need a savior who has tasted the cup of horror we are being forced to drink. And that is how he came. He knew what this world needed. The world needed what no mere man could be. The world needed a suffering sovereign. Mere suffering would not do. Mere sovereignty would not do. The one is not strong enough to save. The other is not weak enough to sympathize. So he came as he who he was, the compassionate king, the crushed conqueror, the lamb-like lion, the suffering sovereign. And now he comes to Sutherland Springs, Texas. The God who draws near to Sutherland Springs is the suffering, sympathetic God-man, Jesus Christ. No one else can feel what he has felt. No one else can love like he can love. No one else can heal like he can heal. No one else can save like he can save. Who are we and what have we ever done to deserve a God like him? Christian, is is the suffering hard? Is following Jesus too painful in this world? Do you wish to avoid it? Do you sometimes perhaps wish that you can go and worship and give your life over to something or someone else? Maybe it's easier, but the question always is, what has that something or someone ever done for you? What has it done for you to deserve your life, your worship, your giving all? What has it ever done for you? It's only in Jesus that you will ever have a God who has suffered for you, who has died for you, because you were special or did anything to deserve it? No. Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, it says. The righteous for the unrighteous, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You won't ever find anyone like him anywhere else. If anyone is worth suffering for, it's him. If anyone is worth walking through difficult things for, It's Jesus. So first and foremost, we are encouraged and strengthened in the midst of our suffering because we're never alone in the suffering. Are you suffering? You feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. You have in Jesus a God, a suffering sovereign who knows exactly what you're going through and he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. The next thing that Peter points us to to provide Strength and encouragement is he points us to the days of Noah. Again, this is a hard to understand passage, but let's keep the context in mind. And the question is, what about the days of Noah? What about being reminded of the days of Noah brings us encouragement and hope? Very quickly, in at least three ways, it shows us that Jesus is not only with you, but he's working through you. Number two, we're reminded that God is patient towards sinners. And number three, we're told that there is a day of vindication coming. These are all the things that we see in the days of Noah. So let's look at the first point. Jesus is not only with you in the midst of your suffering, but he's working through your suffering. Where do we see this? 
18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, when it comes to the spirit of Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison, there are really just two main views that fall within biblical bounds. There are other views that I just don't think you can take biblically as a Christian. So without getting into all those views, I'll explain the two main ones. I'll explain the first one, why I think that the second one is more compelling, but really you can decide for yourselves. The first view is that this is describing what Jesus did after he died, but before his resurrection. The first view is that Jesus, after he died, he went to hell and preached to the spirits in prison. This comes from the common belief that comes from the Apostles' Creed, which reads that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and that he descended into hell, and that on the third day he rose again from the dead. But this phrase, Jesus descended into hell, is nowhere to be found in the Bible, But if this view is correct, and if Jesus did go to hell, the question is, why did he go there, and what did he do there? This view says that Jesus went to hell after his death to proclaim victory and triumph over all demonic realm, along with everyone who were imprisoned there because of their unbelief. Now, I don't think there's anything unbiblical about this view. Many of the early church fathers, theologians, pastors that love God and take seriously God's word has held and hold to this view. But here's the reason why I would ask you to consider the second view. The second view is that what this is saying is that the spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah as Noah himself preached the message of warning and repentance. Why do people hold to this second view? Because Peter doesn't say that Jesus preached to spirits generally, but that the spirit of Christ preached particularly to those who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And so it's such a limited audience, it would be such a strange group for Jesus to travel to hell to preach to, just to those who did not obey in the days of Noah. And again, remember the context, remember what we saw last week, Peter has just told them to be prepared, to make a defense to anyone who asks them for the hope that is in them, right? And so don't you see how this would be incredibly encouraging and strengthening to suffering Christians who are called to boldly preach the gospel in the midst of the suffering and the persecution. Peter is saying, remember the days of Noah when literally the whole world was against him and hostile against him, how they mocked him, persecuted him, and yet he preached. And Peter is saying when Noah preached, Jesus himself was there in spirit preaching through him. And so ultimately, the encouragement and the hope that Peter is giving us is that when you proclaim Jesus, anytime you preach the gospel, especially so in the most difficult times when you're you're suffering and being persecuted for doing so, Jesus himself is there with you, proclaiming and preaching through you. And so this is what we see so far. You are never alone when you're suffering. Christian, you are never alone when you're suffering and you are never alone when you're preaching the gospel. When you're suffering, you're not just the victim on the sideline on injured reserve. That's how we feel sometimes, right? When we're suffering, we feel like, you know, I can't really do anything for the kingdom. I can't really go and minister to other people. I I just have to get better and then I'll get back in, right? 
But what Peter is saying is when you're suffering, when you're being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, you're in the game. When you're suffering, that's when you're on center stage, as it were. Jesus is mightily and powerfully at work through you in those moments. The second thing we see in the days of Noah is that God is patient to sinners. It says when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And Genesis 6-5 tells us about the condition of man in those days before the flood of those that did not formally obey. It says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And if this was the extent of the sinfulness and the rebellion and the evil of man, the question is, why did God endure it? He's holy, he's righteous. Why did he endure it? Why didn't he just immediately wipe us out right then and there? Was it because Noah was so slow and it took him 120 years to build the ark? Was it because God really wanted to save Noah and his family and all the animals, but the only way that he could think to do so was through an ark, and so he just was kind of stuck, and he had to wait until the ark was built. No, Peter is saying the reason why every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, even though evil had reached to such an extent, but still God waited 120 more years to send the flood, was because God is patient to sinners. He's patient. So why does this encourage us? Because for many of us, the persecution that we face won't just be from strangers and just kind of blank nobodies. The persecution and the disapproval and the looking down upon will come from loved ones, people that were desperate for God to save. Many of the suffering Christians of Peter's day, like us, had unbelieving friends, had unbelieving family members. Remember, we just talked about having unbelieving spouses. And Peter is saying, remember when man's evil reached as high as it could reach and still God gave them 120 more years of patience? He's saying, take courage. God is slow to anger. He is quick to forgive and reconcile. Who is it in your life that you are so desperate for God to save? Who is it in your life that you're so desperate for God to save and you're wondering, is it too late? Are they too far gone? And what Peter is saying is have hope. We have a God who is patient, more patient than we could ever imagine, more patient than we could ever be. Our patience for them will run out before God's patience for them runs out. And here's the third reason why being reminded of the days of Noah gives us encouragement and hope. Many of us believe that God is patient and kind and will not punish sin as it deserves to be punished right then and there, but that he's patient, long-suffering, and he is that. But if he's only that, then we have a God who is merciful but not just. If he's only that, we have a God who is gracious but not righteous, but he's both. And since he's both not one over the other, though he was patient, for 120 years he was patient, there did come a day when the doors of the ark was shut and the flood of judgment finally came. Verse 20, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, the flood waters of God's judgment. And this too is good news for us. 
This too ought to encourage us and to give us hope in the midst of suffering. Why? Because it's telling us that the days of being persecuted and mocked will come to an end. That there will be a day of vindication. Well, just think about the mockery that Noah and his family must have received. For 120 years, they were building an ark. Can you get your mind around that? For 120 years, they were building a boat. Think about that. All day, every day, working, laboring, preaching, warning others to come and join them while they laugh and mock and just think you're absolutely crazy for what you believe. He must have looked like an absolute lunatic. I imagine kids coming and throwing rocks at him and heckling the old man that's been building a boat as long as they've been alive. A flood, a a global flood. Do you know that some theologians think that, that up until this point, it had never even rained? It had never even rained that there was, a, there was an atmosphere of water that surrounded the earth and so that hydrated the earth. But regardless, certainly a global flood that God sent to judge the world has never happened before, right? But nevertheless, Noah kept building every day no matter what. Why? How? Because he believed God. He believed what God said even more than what his eyes could see. And he didn't have some side thing going, right? Where he was hedging just in case God's word didn't come true. You know what, if the flood doesn't come, this will just be my house, great big mansion. That would be a terrible way to spend 120 years of your life, right? He wasn't hedging, he was all in on what God had said. And think about this. What if after he had endured everything that he had endured, all the suffering, all all the mockery, right? And the ark was finally ready, ready. But then the rains never came. How would he have felt? The only way that Noah could look at all the suffering and the persecution and feel that it was worth it is if the rains do come, is if the day of vindication does come. Hebrews 11 verse seven says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, something that has never happened before, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Peter is reminding suffering Christians of the days of Noah because isn't this how we feel sometimes? Being mocked, being persecuted, all because we believe something, events as yet unseen, that the Bible is true, that Jesus, in fact, is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Church, you may feel like you're just a part of the few, like in Noah's day, eight. You may feel sometimes living in Austin, Texas, that literally that there's just like eight Christians in Austin. It's, it's, it's like the eight of you against the whole world, right? And I wonder... I wonder if Noah ever doubted, right? I wonder if like year three, he just kind of stopped and, what what am I doing right now? I wonder if like year 46, he doubted. I wonder if uh, year 119, he doubted. Am I just absolutely foolish? for being willing to be persecuted and mocked because 
I believe in Jesus. Do you ever feel that? Especially when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and you're saying it out loud. I believe there's God. I believe he had a son and he was born into this world through a virgin. And all the righteousness that God demanded from me, he lived out, but I was a sinner. But God loved me, and so he sent his son for me to die on the cross for me. But that he rose again from the dead, and he's coming back. And they're looking at you like you're crazy, right? You start saying out loud some of the things that you believe, some of the things that you're following in the scriptures, and the world's going to look at you like you're crazy. And do you doubt sometimes? Is this true? Is this true? It sounds crazy, Is this worth all the pain and persecution and being mocked, hostility? But Peter is saying, take courage, have hope. A day of vindication came for Noah, and it will come for you too. There's coming a day when the trumpets will sound and Jesus will return on the clouds, high and lifted up to judge the living and the dead, returning for his people, trampling upon his enemies, days things, events as yet unseen. It has never happened before, but we believe it will happen, just like Noah, right? Peter's saying, have hope. Your day of vindication is coming. Your days will not always be filled with mockery and suffering. It's gonna come to an end. Now, lastly, Peter points to our baptism. What does baptism have to do with all of this? Verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism which corresponds to this, he says. Corresponds to what? Baptism corresponds to coming safely through the water in an ark. That's what it corresponds to. He's drawing a parallel. He's saying, just as the eight got into the ark and were kept hidden and safe from the flood waters of God's justice, You too are in an ark, Christian, and so you too can pass safely through the waters of baptism. But why why are the waters of baptism dangerous? You know, many times we think the waters of baptism represent something safe and good, like you're taking a spiritual boba bath or something. But Peter is saying that the waters of baptism represents God's flood waters of judgment. It represents death. That's why when you're being plunged into the water, it represents dying with Christ. And what's the whole point of baptism? To be plunged into the water, right? But then to come out, that water is dangerous. You stay in the water, you you die. The whole point of baptism is so that you come back out of the water. But how can you face the flood waters of God's judgment and be safe? How can you rise and not drown? Because you're kept safe, hidden. Because you too are inside the ark. And now what is that ark? Who is that ark, we should say? The flood water, the flood story, is pointing to the need for the true ark of salvation, and his name is Jesus. You see, it is through the judgment and the suffering that Jesus received that we're saved. This is the picture that Peter is trying to draw for us. Think about the flood. When the flood waters of God's judgment and wrath, what's it doing? It's coming crashing upon the ark, right? Slapping and crashing, wave after wave after wave, crashing upon the ark. But what about the eight? They're safe, hidden in the ark, right? 
And so on the cross, what's happening? All the floodwaters of God's judgment and wrath against your sin is coming crashing upon Jesus. God is pouring it out, just like he did in the days of Noah. It's coming crashing upon Jesus, wave after wave after wave. All the judgment and wrath you and I received, all the, all the floodwaters of God's judgment and wrath you and I deserve, it's coming crashing upon who? Upon Jesus. But you're safe if you're in him. That's what baptism represents. Baptism now saves you, Peter says, and it's not the physical act of baptism. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, he quickly adds, but it's the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? An appeal to God for a good conscience. I think this is huge. As Christians, we may wonder when we're suffering. I wonder if I'm suffering because God is punishing me for my sins. You guys ever wonder that? When suffering comes your way, you wonder, I wonder if God is punishing me for my sins and that's what suffering is. I wonder if this is happening to me because all those years ago I had an abortion. I wonder if I'm being punished today because last night I looked at pornography. I wonder if the pay cut or the car breaking down is God's punishment to me for not tithing to the church or on and on and on. The question is, if we know that our God is righteous and punishes sin, and if we know that we sin and fall every day, how can we have a good conscience? How can we know that the suffering that's coming our way is not because of our sins and it's just punishment? Peter's once again giving suffering Christians encouragement by saying, God did pour out the floodwaters of his wrath against your sins. He did pour it out, but he didn't poured it out on you. He poured it out on Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter is simply saying what Paul said in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? because all of God's wrath against your sin has been poured out already. There's not a single drop of God's wrath left over for you. It happened once and for all. And so church, when you're suffering, when you're, when you're in pain, you never have to wonder, is this God's punishment against me? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what is suffering if it's not punishment? What is it? Is it just the consequence of, Rogue, evil powers in this world that God just can't do anything about right now. That he will one day return and make it all right, but right now we just have to endure to make it. Verse 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Listen, this is Peter's last offer of encouragement as the chapter closes. He's saying, Christian, the one whom you identify with in baptism, the true ark of your salvation in whom you are hidden and kept safe until the end, through his resurrection from the death, is absolutely sovereign in this world. There is no rogue angel. There is no rogue authority. There is no rogue power in this world operating outside of Jesus' rule and reign to hurt you and bring you pain. And therefore, the suffering that comes your way is never meant to punish you. 
The suffering that comes your way is never meant to destroy you. It's always meant to refine you. It's always meant to purify you. It's always meant to make you look more like Jesus because it's ultimately from Jesus. He's the one that's in control. It's meant to teach you. It's meant to discipline you as a father disciplines his child. It's meant to loosen your grip on the things of this world. It's meant to turn your gaze away from the things of this world that promises so much but always let you down. It's not the sword of an executioner, but it's the blade of a surgeon. Yes, it hurts. It hurts sometimes, but it's because God is cutting out the things in your life that threatens to destroy you and ruin your life forever. It's meant to refine you and prepare you for an eternal weight of glory that is to come. And so suffering Christians, take courage because in Christ, you have a God who has suffered for you. He knows. He knows what you're going through. Have hope because you're never alone in the suffering. Jesus has promised to always be with you and he knows what you're going through. Have hope, be encouraged because in Christ you have a God who reigns over all angels, authorities, and powers. He's in control. You're going to be okay. You're gonna make it. Everything's gonna be okay. You're hidden. You're kept safe in him. Let's pray together. Father, Jesus is so good. Who are we, Lord, to have him in our lives and us in him? Who are we to have that strong ark of salvation that we get to be in and be hidden and be safe and be kept until that day of vindication? Father, let us glory in him. Lord, let us not look at the suffering and the persecution and the hostility and the mockery that's coming from this world and be threatened by it, be surprised by it, live in fear because of it, avoid it every chance we get, Lord, but because we are kept hidden and safe, Lord, let us be bold. Let us be more than conquerors who preach Christ. Lord, in the midst of suffering, we thank you that we are never alone. We thank you that in the midst of preaching your great gospel, we are never alone. But that Jesus is always with us. It's in his powerful and comforting name that we pray. Jesus, Jesus, we love you. Amen.